vehicle can broadly apply to everything from a boat to a bike to an aircraft, so long as the vehicle in question is propelled by electricity rather than the wind or coal or petroleum or some other power source. An EV automobile, EV standing for electric vehicle, typically refers to a car, a truck, or something in between like an SUV or station wagon or crossover vehicle. There are all sorts of terms for the different form factors that are popular in a given decade. But rather than referring to all types of transportation, including things like buses and trains and zeppelins, EV automobile typically means something driven on a road, typically for a relatively small number of passengers, one to a half dozen maybe, though you could conceivably carry more than that if you had to. And you can in some cases carry a very large non-human load of cargo if we include large electric trucks in this definition. And we often call those trucks semis here in the United States. So we can include electric semis in this category as well, if we choose to. And for the purposes of this episode, I will be doing exactly that. Vital EV technologies were originally developed and patented in the 1840s, but mass-produced electric vehicles didn't hit the streets until the early 1900s, when the Studebaker Automobile Company in the United States started churning them out in 1902. Though two years later, that same company also started producing gasoline-powered cars, and that shift was in line with a larger shift in the American automobile industry, which saw Ford, and then eventually other companies as well, mass-producing gasoline-powered cars, which made them cheaper and more widely available. And thus, that mode of locomotion became dominant, though that wasn't the only reason. Electric cars didn't take off at that point in history. The batteries that existed at the time were fairly abominable in terms of storage, and they were thus significantly limited in their range. So the technology was converted for use in trains, and it became a lot more common there than on roads though vestiges of the concept lived on for quite a while in the shape of streetcars and trolleys, situations in which the not-great batteries were not as big a deal because electricity could be funneled to the vehicles consistently in other ways. In 1900, about 28% of the cars on American roads were electric. That was down to the low single digits by the mid-20th century. Part of that decrease was due to the aforementioned utility issue, which became more pressing as the U.S. expanded. The road and highway system was reinforced and stretched to sprawl from coast to coast and to reach all the little hubs, the smaller cities and towns in between. And more range rather than more power became the vital property of the day. But it was also in part due to the discovery of vast oil wealth 
in Texas and Oklahoma and California in particular, which made petroleum-based fuels less expensive, and which in turn made gas-powered cars less expensive to operate across the increasingly large distances that people drove in the U.S. on a regular basis, those prices dropping compared to what was offered by electric cars, despite the latter's savings, their vast economies in other aspects of their operation. A confluence of variables from increasingly pressing concerns about climate change, to improved hardware and software and manufacturing capabilities, to upgrades in overall automobile design, to the invention and refinement of lithium-ion batteries, and the cheaper, relatively abundant generation of electricity, especially via clean sources, has led to a resurgence in popularity for electric vehicles in recent years. And this newfound enthusiasm for EVs kicked off with cars that plugged in to normal outlets in a similar fashion to those back in the day. You might need a converter or adapter to make it work and to optimize it, but you would generally just expect to plug your car in at home, often overnight, and that would give you a full day's charge for the drive to work or wherever else the next day. In recent years, though, the redeployment of those technologies and the reemergence of this class of vehicle as a real competitor, and in many ways, as the vehicle type that is the understood future of the entire industry, based on commitments made by governments and corporations around the globe, that shift has required a change in how charging these vehicles works as well. And at the core of that shift is something that is sometimes called a power point or charge point, which are typically located at charging stations, though all of these terms are often used interchangeably. The basic premise is that these charging stations serve as a place to plug in your electric vehicle, even when you are away from home. So even though EVs are becoming increasingly travel-worthy across larger and larger distances on a single charge, even allowing owners to drive a few hundred miles won't necessarily get them where they need to go. And there is a chance that owners will neglect to plug their cars in overnight, which could leave them with little energy in the battery banks, which then reinforces so-called range anxiety, which has for a very long while kept people from wanting to own EVs. These charging stations, which are often, visibly at least, about the size of a bike rack to about the size of a gas pump, are consequently being installed all over the place, and in many cases being used as an incentive or reward for folks who invest in electric vehicles. They are located in prime parking spots, for instance, that are set aside for EVs only, and you can then go visit the museum or the school or the government building and you can leave your car in the parking lot in this nice spot, charging, so that it is topped up when you leave. Such charging stations are also being installed at or near gas stations, in some cases in an attempt to swipe customers from existing gas stations and their convenience store accompaniments. But they are in some cases installed by the owners of those stations in an attempt to future-proof their operations, 
and to start transitioning toward that seemingly inevitable EV-dominant future. What I'd like to talk about today are charging stations, but also the networks of such stations that are being planned and built already. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from TechCrunch, and it's entitled 7-Eleven to Install 500 EV Charging Ports by the End of 2022. This piece covers an announcement made by 7-Eleven, a global, primarily convenience store brand, indicating that they would be investing in 500 fast-charge charging stations for electric vehicles at 250 of their locations around North America by the end of 2022. So probably two plug-in stations at each of these 250 locations, and the company itself will own the stations and their output, which is a contrast to their gas stations, where they sell fuel for conventional internal combustion engine vehicles, where they own and operate the store and the station, but not the fuel, which they buy from someone else. This is an interesting development for several reasons. First, at the moment, the majority of charging stations, in North America at least, are scattered around mostly relatively vacant spaces, like in a far-flung portion of a shopping mall parking lot, or near a just-off-the-highway hotel. 7-Elevens share many of the attributes of these existing locations in that they are close enough to major travel arteries to be convenient for drivers of electric vehicles so they can pull over and charge up when they need to, and in that they are available in places that are set aside for them. Just like at a gas station, you need room to pull your car up and then to be able to wait at least a few minutes to top up your fuel. What's compelling about their offering, though, is that like a more conventional gas station, they will be able to pull in people who own EVs and then probably also bring them inside, maybe just to use the restrooms, but such visits, in addition to being profitable in terms of selling electricity for their cars, can also be profitable in terms of selling slushies and candy bars and other such on-the-road necessities. There are, as I mentioned, already convenience stores that have EV charging stations on site, But to make it a thing, to know, hey, there's a 7-Eleven, there's a good chance I can pull in there and get some juice for my car, that is a pretty intriguing opportunity for this brand to make visiting their locations and looking for their logo a habit amongst the relatively, at this point anyway, spendy demographic of people who own the relatively, at this point, more expensive electric vehicles that are available in North America. Also, this company might benefit from entering this space at this moment because we are at a point in which the required technology is not so new that it's likely to break and be a bad investment, and it's not so new that they might accidentally invest in the wrong standard, the wrong shaped plug-in port or voltage, so that they can't be used in most cars. 
and we're at a point in which direct current fast chargers are now available and relatively inexpensive compared to a few years ago at least. And these fast chargers are quite a bit faster than other available charger models from the past couple of years. For comparison, and this will vary from car to car and from country to country, but in general, to charge a Tesla Model S long-range electric vehicle to get 100 kilometers of range worth of battery charge, which is a little over 62 miles worth of range, it takes 13 hours of charging time using a typical American 120-volt outlet of the kind that you have in your home if you live in the United States. And it takes about half that, around six and a half hours, to charge your car from a home outlet of the sort that is used in much of Europe and parts of Asia and Africa, which is about 230 volts on average. It takes about 2.6 hours to get that 100 kilometers of charge from a 240-volt outlet of the sort that is used in most common public alternating current, that's AC-based EV charging stations, that exist around North America today. It takes about 1.7 hours via a European three-phase alternating current EV charging station. So similar to that other one, but a little bit better because it is a three-phase AC charging station instead of the common North American single phase. Getting that amount of range takes 51 minutes of charging from an upgraded version of that three-phase AC European charging station model. It takes 22 minutes from a mid-power direct current, or DC, charging station of the kind that are starting to pop up around North America, and it takes about nine minutes from a second-generation Tesla supercharger, which is a DC-style charger that has been optimized for Tesla vehicles. And thus, it's great at those, but generally not super useful for other electric vehicle brands. The charging station type that we're talking about here, that 7-Eleven is planning to use, is that second from the last before the Tesla model variety which uses direct current instead of alternating current, and which thus allows for a better flow of energy, but it also cuts out a stage that is otherwise necessary for charging electric vehicles. Basically, the car often has to convert alternating current into direct current electricity before it can store it. And just using DC instead of AC up front is more difficult, and you have to build somewhat more expensive and specialized delivery mechanisms in order to make that happen. But these new models of charger do exactly that, and thus you can get 100 kilometers of range in about 22 minutes, rather than the 2.6 hours that is most common in North America today. And that, you might have noted, is even better than the upgraded three-phase AC models of charger that are used across much of Europe contemporarily and which can deliver 100 kilometers in 51 minutes. So 7-Eleven is entering this space at a sweet spot moment for this technology, and that could allow them to not just become a reliable source of these types of charging services, but maybe even the best source.
for such services, which would put them above everyone else that has these lower-end chargers on hand, and it could set them up as the brand to beat, which again reinforces their brand perception with a highly desirable market, and a market that is set to increase in scale massively in the coming decade. But it also allows them to sell a lot of electricity, a lot of snacks, and so on. Also interesting is that there was another announcement in this space just a day after 7-Eleven made their announcement. And that announcement was that Tesla had filed for a new trademark that would allow them to apply their brand to restaurants and related services, including things like pop-up shops, self-service setups, and takeout arrangements. That application is still awaiting approval, but speculation ran rampant almost immediately as fans and detractors of Tesla speculated about how they might build various food-related services into their larger, interconnected model. Tesla CEO Elon Musk, back in early 2018, tweeted, quote, Gonna put an old-school drive-in, roller skates, and rock restaurant at one of the new Tesla supercharger locations in L.A., end quote. A few months later, they did in fact apply to build a supercharger station with a restaurant attached. But all we have seen so far is a station with a lounge attached to it. Which is no doubt nice, but it's not exactly the same thing, especially in terms of potential economic returns for the company. Now that this possibility has re-emerged, so have the speculations about this brand maybe having figured out a way to monetize one of the biggest complaints that they hear from customers. That it is boring and time-wasting to just sit around while waiting for their cars to charge at these Tesla-branded stations. Potentially having a restaurant there, and who knows, maybe even a convenience store, something like a high-end 7-Eleven, would allow them to both keep their customers entertained and allow them to open up a new revenue stream, reinforcing their brand while also making it more economically sustainable and resilient by making it less reliant on any one thing. This larger story of charging stations and interconnected amenities is also interesting on a more meta level because of what it says about the potential near-future charging station networks that are being planned and built around the world right now. Some of these networks are being built in part or fully by automobile and adjacent companies, and quite a few have government incentives or full-on government help in their establishment in terms of making sure that they line up with other government priorities related to travel and infrastructure, but also in terms of making sure they are equitably distributed, that they're using proper standards and that they apply proper safety measures and in some cases that they prod would-be electric vehicle buyers into making a purchase sooner rather than later, making them appealing, not just practical, basically. There are a few dozen countries, some as large as the U.S. and China, and some as comparably small as Iceland and Slovenia, that have announced these sorts of efforts already, and it's likely that other countries will do the same in the near future as such efforts become more affordable 
as global production shifts toward EV-centric modes of operation, and as the kinks in such partnerships and programs are worked out, making them more appealing to these governments that are either waiting or that don't see the value of such a program quite yet. The implications of these sorts of networks are fairly broad and substantial. Until these networks are in place, many people will simply not be able to casually use an electric car, and some industries will be unable to apply the technology to their work, no matter how much they might want to. These networks will also require the installation and deployment of all sorts of supplementary technologies and infrastructure, like internet service and high-end electrical services, to areas that are currently underserved or completely unserved. And it'll take quite a bit of time to fill in the gaps on that, almost certainly. But it will also, eventually, reinforce the infrastructure in these areas. It will improve connectivity in terms of transportation, but also data and power service. And along the way, it will almost certainly create a whole lot of jobs, which could make these sorts of efforts, although expensive and time-consuming, a lot more politically appealing. There could also be secondary knock-on effects of such investments, like simultaneous repairs to roads and bridges, as in some cases the installation and upgrading of EV-related infrastructure will run parallel with desires to install and upgrade more fundamental transportation components. The shift of fueling up behaviors from gas stations to whatever comes next will almost certainly kill off some entities and weaken others, even as it gives birth to upstarts. It'll likely rearrange some existing routes and landmarks as well, which isn't inherently a bad thing, but it will likely be painful during the transition period, especially in maybe 10 years when the changes and the destruction that they have wrought as part of their introduction are beginning to take shape and fall into place, but the need for older infrastructure and gas stations will remain. No one on either side of the EV divide will be getting exactly what they need, exactly when and how and where they want it, and we will face all of the conflict that might stem from that kind of division and all of its associated social and economic consequences. We may see the emergence of other technologies, and even fuel and fuel storage types too, as this new reality is built. Hydrogen is still on some companies' minds, as it could provide a suitable alternative to batteries for energy storage in some cases, provided the hydrogen is produced sustainably and without emissions, and the storage and transportation and utilization of that hydrogen is as safe as possible. This fuel can be volatile, but it also has some advantages, especially for larger vehicles, over today's pure electric methods of storage and propulsion. We could also see wireless electricity delivery emerge on some roadways, or perhaps just parking lots and similar car storage spaces at some point in the next 10 years. 
The technology is already technically there at a very basic level. Now we just have to figure out the proper application of it and sort out how to deal with all of the awkward realities of the real world, especially the real world at the speeds at which people drive and with all the clutter and variables that can arise while we're driving. So this is not anywhere near a certainty, but having charging station networks already set up makes wireless charging more of a possibility because most of the underlying infrastructure required would already be in place, including, perhaps most importantly, a more thorough transition to electric vehicles, which itself is enabled by the existence of this network of chargers. We will also, quite possibly, see a shift toward totally autonomous or nearly autonomous driving for some types of vehicle Possibly just semis and similar cargo-carrying vehicles at first, but maybe all vehicles eventually, if the folks making them can get the quirks worked out and can generate the political will to wade through all of the legal complexities that are associated with such a transition. This would allow our transportation networks to be clean and non-polluting, but also optimally way safer and faster and more efficient. The specifics of much of what would be required to make this happen are still fuzzy, so don't expect it to be widespread in the next handful of years, but there are already places where autonomous driving is being applied for niche use cases like for individual neighborhoods and shopping centers in various countries around the world. So it's not impossible, and the benefits, theoretically at least, would seem to be worth the downsides. It's just a matter of seeing whether people and governments will be willing to shift from the downsides that we know to those that we don't. And if we are, how long it will take to make the psychological and bureaucratic changes required to put such a system into practice. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took On the West by Catherine Belton. This is a fairly substantial, it's quite long, and very deeply researched book that provides a very compelling look into how Vladimir Putin, the current president of Russia, how he came to power, what the power he wields actually looks like, and what his particular power structure has done to the shape of Russia's government and economy and its place in the world. It is a very deep and rich and fascinating look at this particular subject, and if you are at all curious about modern Russia, Russia's government, or the way that they interact and engage with the rest of the world, this is a very good read to not just get you caught up, but to fill in a whole lot of the blanks that exist in most modern reportage about this topic. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Putin's People by Catherine Belton. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. 
and you can subscribe to receive my daily news summary at onesentencenews.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.